Hello again, welcome to Two Ways News Podcast. I'm Philip Jensen. Tony Payne's down sick this week, so you'll be just having me speaking to you about statues and heroes. Why do we have statues? Have you ever pondered it? I mean, they honour great people. Well, somebody thinks they were great people. Sometimes it's just because they're very wealthy people and could have a statue made of themselves. We have statues in parks and in public places to remember and memorialise the, their contribution to us. And so there's statues of kings and rulers, of governors, but also of sponsors, of people who have done great things, it would see. Um, you see a statue, and it brings, their, brings this person of history back into the present. Sometimes it introduces you to somebody and what they've done. Somebody showed me, for example, the other day, a statue of Francis Ormond, he stands before the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology because he was its founder, a fine Christian man, a Presbyterian, who did many great things in life. I didn't even know of him. I knew of Ormond College. I'd heard that name but didn't realise his impact at Melbourne University as well. Or there are statue of La Trobe in Melbourne. There's a couple of statues of La Trobe in Melbourne. And La Trobe was the first lieutenant governor of Victoria. Again, a keen Christian man like Ormond was. And La Trobe's got these two statues, one in a traditional characteristic in his uniform, but the other one, <laughs> he's actually upside down. It's part of the, not necessarily disrespect to La Trobe himself, but disrespect to the whole concept of putting famous men on statues in pedestals in parks. We do make these statues larger than life. And they're usually standing proud and victorious, uh, godlike. It's like the statues of gods that are used by people for worship. The statue is of a hero, godlike characters, some just rich some rich because of ill-gotten gains, but people who have made a big impact in society, the heroes of our culture and civilization. But then that raises my second question. The first is why have statues, but the second is what is a hero? It's somebody we admire for courage, for achievements, notable qualities, but are our sporting heroes really heroes? So many footballers seem to be disreputable, anything but the kind of noble qualities we want in somebody. We've had a terrible case here in the courts of Australia of recent times with a man who's been awarded a Victoria Cross because of his action of great bravery in the context of war, but who has now been accused and in some ways found to be somebody who did bad things in the war. People would say a war criminal. Can the brave one action taken, which is awarded as a medal, establish the person as a hero when other actions undermine the quality of our value of the character of the person? Can you be a hero with a very flawed character? Is hero... Something about actions of heroism? Or is hero something about 
character and integrity. The hero's status, of course, is challenged when we remove statues. For our history moves on and our values of people move on. Soldiers, statesmen, slave owners have all had their statues pulled down around the world in different places because where they were in their own generation thought of as great heroes for whom statues were made, subsequently finding out more about them and our value systems changing, people no longer want to see their statues, no longer want them to be honoured in the public community. Take an issue like eugenics and racism. The late 19th century, early 20th century, eugenics, of course, was a matter of great importance in the studies of the academic world. But the racism that was inherent in eugenics and the character of the Nazis' usage of eugenics has made it really totally unacceptable as a study. Professor Richard Berry was an anatomist, was a eugenics, racist. A building was named after him in the University of Melbourne because he worked there in the middle of the 20th and early part of the 20th century. But the building has now been renamed. We don't want to honour him, so we've removed the reference to him. But is that what we should do? By removing references to him, by removing the name, then are we actually forgetting our history? Are we censoring our history? Will Melbourne University and its anatomy department be able to go on as if it has never been used for eugenics research? Or or take the statue of Darwin. It's already been removed and replaced. It's it's in the Natural History Museum in London. It's in a dominant place on the staircase. Halfway up the staircase, there is this great statue of Darwin sitting on his chair. The the Natural History Museum was really uh, built. The great moving force behind it was a man called Richard Owen who disagreed with Darwin. And the statue of Darwin was placed there after the The museum was open for a few years in 1885, but when Owen died, the statue of Darwin was removed and the statue of Owen was put in its place. And there it remained until 2009 when the statue of Darwin was returned back to its place and the statue of Owen was removed. It's got to do with the politics. It's got to do with the ideology of whom we think is the important person who should be there in the middle, in this very prominent position. But when you read A.N. Wilson's uh, history, Charles Darwin, the Victorian mythmaker, you see Darwin's racism and even his grudging acceptance of eugenics, which gave the green light to Galton and the family members who pushed further into eugenics, for it was out of the Darwinian ideas and out of the Darwinian theory that eugenics actually was developed. But his racism was clear. 
as you read his own books, if you read The Descent of Man, for example, I, I did it over a summer holiday a couple of years ago, I was astonished to see how freely he called Australian Aborigines, amongst other people, savages, a word that we would never think of using today. Either it was true that Australian Aborigines were savages, and if so, our attempts to acknowledge the bad things that we have done to them over the last 200 years, well, that will need some serious rethinking. Or it wasn't true. They weren't savages. It was Darwin's racism and his terrible European colonial ideas of civilization. But if that's the case, we really seriously need to rethink of Darwin. Or, or take the heroes of the sexual revolution. Uh, James Franklin has written a very interesting book, Corrupting the Youth, A History of Philosophy in Australia. In it, he exposes so many of the philosophers, especially, of course, the famous one, Professor John Anderson of the University of Sydney, as being people who did degenerate the youth, corrupted the youth of Sydney. Professor John Anderson, whom I've disagreed with, as he was the great leader of atheism, but whom I've always had a respect for as one who was just intellectual, is shown up in the book, to be a man whose own personal life in relationship to one of his students, Ruth Walker, is very questionable. The actions, if they are true, really would have him dismissed in a university context today. But of course, it was the crowd that followed him, the push, as they are called in Sydney, that have so many heroes, great names of important people to our culture in the last 50, 60 years, but yet, but yet now we see their lives were anything but honourable. Richard Neville boasting of his sex with an underage girl and creating a program advocating man-boy love on the, on the ABC and the ABC defending him for doing it. <laughs> That's... So much the case, isn't it? Michael Foucault, the French intellectual, defending, if not also practising, pedophilia. Or the dreadful case of Dorothy Hewitt, awarded the Member of Australia for her contribution as a playwright, but yet now the scandal of the way she raised her daughters and the damage they feel that has been done to them by the sexual immorality of the household. Degeneracy would lead us to remove these people from their, their statues, their awards, their fame, their reputation, but yet it's only certain people that seem to fall under the condemnation of the cancel cultures. Hypocrisy is a dreadful thing, it's an evil thing. But hypocrisy is not as bad as degeneracy. The hypocrite can be called to account because the hypocrite still has a moral universe. He just is preaching one thing and practising another. But the degenerate doesn't have a moral universe and can never be called to account. Yes, 
Within Christianity, there have been terrible hypocrites. But within atheism, there's no hypocrisy, for all immorality is done away with. And so, there is nothing to call people to account for. It's sad, really, because later on, people do want to call these people to account. The Jimmy Savills of this world have been called to account after their death, but history can look back and say that was wrong. The problem really comes from the category of hero. What is it that we really want from our heroes? See, the Bible has a much clearer understanding of human nature than our hero worship, than our statues. For the Bible sees all people everywhere have sinned. There are no heroes without flaws. All heroes have flaws, moral flaws. That's why it's so difficult to write a fiction story where the hero or heroine is always only good. That's why our heroes and heroines have to have flaws to be believable because in real life, all heroes have flaws. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote that very famous quotable quote, The line between good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That is such a Bible, such a Christian understanding. The problem of evil is your problem and my problem, not God's problem. It's our problem that we all are tainted by sinfulness. The hypocrite judges others, has a log in his own eye, as Jesus would put it, but he's trying to remove the speck from his brother's eye. In that passage that people love so much, which textually may not be in John's Gospel, chapter 8, where Jesus says, Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. It is enough to remove all the opponents, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can throw the stone at the other without hypocrisy. But our job is not to judge others. Our job is to love others. And so when we see our brother in sin, it's not for us to judge. It's not for us to condemn. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, is what the Apostle Paul says. We must bear each other's burdens, not criticise each other. Seek to help each other, not seek to put each other down. See, a right understanding of humanity, of sin, would lead us not to put any statues up or lead us never to pull them down when we find the sinfulness of the person. 
For that's just reality. The reality that the Bible teaches of our universal sinfulness. Well, that's what I was thinking about without Tony. Maybe with Tony I'd have a happier story for you this week. But of course, the real happiness of the story is that the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ means that all and every sin is forgivable when we turn to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good things you give to us, but above all for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can face the reality of our sinfulness. We do pray that you would take from us hypocrisy in our judgment of others, that you would give to us love to be concerned for others. And we pray, Father, that we may all and every one of us find the forgiveness that you give us in the death of your Son. And we ask it in his name. Amen.